It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. One of our favorite things to discuss on This Might Get Uncomfortable are documentaries. And I feel like I started off saying these exact words in another episode (laughs) recently, but I'll reiterate it because it's true. I mean, there seems to be an influx in programming around mental health and just examining culture on, on a deeper level, which is fascinating. We've talked about Fake Famous, the documentary about influencer culture. We've talked about Generation Hustle, which was a series or is a series on HBO about those. Those are both on HBO, actually. Generation Hustle is about the, you know, it's interesting, Jason. It's like, was it specifically about a generation in terms of age or was it like right now in this time we're generation hustled, no matter how old you are. I'm not quite sure, actually. I haven't thought about that. But but the hustle culture and the ways in which people are generating income. We've also talked about Childhood 2.0 and the social dilemma, which both touch upon social media's impact on people of different ages. Obviously, Childhood 2.0 is about children. And I'm sure we've we've talked about some other documentaries that I'm not remembering off the top of my head. I really enjoyed the way that filmmakers and television producers have represented these subject matters. And I think it's really important because it combines entertainment with information, which makes it easier for people to understand these things. The newest series in this genre is called The Me You Can't See, which is what we're going to talk about today. It's a new series on Apple TV Plus, I think is what it's officially called, (laughs) Apple's uh, streaming service, which I actually really enjoyed. They have great programming. It reminds me a lot of HBO in some ways. And uh, this one in particular is produced by Oprah Winfrey. And I'm not sure, but I assume that Prince Harry is, in addition to being on screen with Oprah, is also a producer. And they join forces to guide honest discussions about mental health, which sounds a lot like our description here for this podcast. The series features illuminating stories from around the globe, giving the opportunity to see Seek truth, understanding, and a newfound hope for the future. And again, that sounds a lot like this show. So I knew I needed to watch it. It just came out. We are recording this episode on May 22nd, 2021. And I believe the whole series dropped yesterday, Friday, May 21st. And right now, I, I'm not sure if they've released all episodes for season one, but they have five up as of today. I have watched one and a half episodes. The first one is called Say It Loud, and the description is millions of people around the globe struggle with mental health in silence. In order to heal, that silence must be broken, and now is the time. 
It features Prince Harry, Oprah Winfrey, Lady Gaga, and I believe just two other people that I was not familiar with ahead of time. One of them is a chef, and one of them is a is she a boxer, Jason? Is that what she does? Yeah, she's an Olympic boxer. Ginny. Thank you. And then episode two, which I'm halfway through, is called Asking for Help. The pain, suffering, and urgent need for help is universal, and the simple act of sharing is a powerful first step. And that episode features a little bit more of Prince Harry. Oprah tells her story there. Robin Williams' son is in that, and a woman named Alex so far through that episode. And the stories are really remarkable. It, the The production value of of this series is is fantastic. I love the structure of it. it. It really kind of surprised me. It felt a bit unique in that it feels like a feature length documentary. Each episode is about an hour long, a little under an hour. And I like how they, they tell these little vignettes, like these segments on each person and they come back around. It's very well framed and there's lessons to be learned throughout each episode. I felt emotional watching it. I've, I've cried a number of times. I felt very moved by it. I'm feeling like I'm learning a lot. I'm intrigued. It's just fantastic. I mean, you couldn't expect anything less from Oprah and Apple, Apple combined. And I do want to give a trigger warning to anyone who's listening, but also as, as is shown at the beginning of each episode of The Me You Can't See, that of course, mental health, emotional well-being are discussed and people are sharing experiences. Um, so just giving a heads up that we may touch upon some of these things such as physical and mental trauma, anxiety, depression, uh, drug usage, OCD, divorce, a, a number of, of challenging subject matters. But as one of the big points that I've gained from the show thus far is how important it is to talk about these things openly because that gives other people either permission or the strength and the confidence to discuss it and the healing power of listening to people, holding space for them and encouraging them and doing our best to understand them instead of judge them. Jason, how far have you made it through this show thus far? And, and what are some of your feelings before we dig into the specifics? Yeah, I watched almost the entirety. I made it to the end of episode one. And it's been, first of all, eye-opening to see the different forms that mental illness can take and ones that I've been ignorant to, in, in not in terms of ignorant to their existence, ignorant to seeing how they play out in a person's life and how they affect their well-being and how they affect how how they interact with other people. There's been a deep resonance in certain ways of listening, say to, and we'll, we'll get into this obviously, but someone like Chef Rashad and his story with his father and his story with being very successful in the, the, the food industry as a chef and how, you know, on the outside, people perceived him as this positive, happy, engaging, gregarious person, but inside he felt completely broken. I mean, I, I, in some ways that moved me the most because I could identify with his energy and his life story and what he was feeling. 
but the eye-opening part was was looking at someone like you know Ginny, this Olympic boxer who struggles with OCD and and my ignorance around OCD. You know her specific kind of OCD being being a, a contamination OCD. So it, you know it's been a really so far just eye-opening, and also I'm really grateful that this exists and that these conversations are coming out in such a raw, personal way. My impression of it so far is this is not a a glossy, insubstantive discussion on mental health. To me, this seems like we're talking about people of different ethnicities, different professions, different backgrounds, different levels of wealth and fame. And I hope, Whitney, that this removes a stigma you and I have discussed on many episodes of the podcast in the past, which is if you're rich and famous and influential, you're not allowed to struggle with mental health. And I hope that this documentary series, as we go into it, not only explores the depth and the breadth of the different forms of mental illness and what that does to people and how it affects their lives, and also showing that mental illness does not give a shit about your money or your fame or your influence or your color or your race or your gender. Like This is affecting people with so many different backgrounds and from so many different walks of life. And I hope it opens people's minds and hearts to how how broad this is, truly. Absolutely. And that's such a great point because I found myself reflecting on that too, Jason, and how there's this fine line between kind of capitalizing on the trend of mental health and wellness, as we've talked about throughout the show. And sometimes I feel uncomfortable calling our podcast a mental health podcast because we're not mental health professionals. And we try to remind our listeners over and over again and be very transparent about that. Our aim here is not to diagnose or, you know, give therapy. It's it's to talk openly. And the show is basically just like that, which which I appreciate. And our aim is not to capitalize on it. Our aim, similar to that show, is to explore it, to help others. And I, I felt like in the beginning of episode one, I wasn't quite sure what I was feeling. Like, even, there was moments where I was watching Lady Gaga, Stephanie is, is her name, talk about it. And it was like, I found myself wondering if it can feel like forced or contrived when it comes to a celebrity. Those thoughts were just thoughts and curiosities, not judgments, but but wondering when people talk about these things, if they are contrived, you know, if they are thought of ahead of time and used, like is Apple using this topic just to make money, right? Like is Oprah using it because it's a popular thing, you know? But as I've watched the show, I, I don't believe that to be true. I, I really hope and believe that, you know, Oprah is a very savvy businesswoman, but like she seems very genuine in her desire to support others. And it's easy to look at someone like her and feel and make a lot of judgments. And I think it was Lady Gaga, Stephanie, who said that we can look at celebrities and think like, well, who are they to complain about their lives? In fact, I think I wrote down. Yeah, she said that privilege, money and power. She had all of those things, but was still miserable. And I think it's. 
it's tempting for someone that doesn't have the same privileges for her. She's, she's a young white woman who's been incredibly successful and made a lot of money and had a lot of dreams come true from the outside. So who is she to be miserable? She has a lot of money, as I mentioned. So someone without a lot of money might feel very different uh, without the same amount of power, right? So you can look at her, Oprah, Prince Harry. And they, and I wonder, actually, if some people won't watch this show because of that. You know, I think some people will watch because of that. And some people won't watch because of that. They think, well, how relatable is it? And that's why it's so great that this show mixes in a number of other people. In episode two, there's um, a woman named Alex who was homeless at one point or unhomed and has gone through PTSD and abuse, some developmental trauma, which is a term I'm grateful to learn about. And just sharing her story is really helpful. And then you see that in contrast to some of the, or in, in parallel to some of these other people. And then when Zach Robin Williams son comes on and talks about it, you know, it's a tender thing because you're watching it, him talk about this as the son of a man who was incredibly famous and powerful in his own way and had a lot of money and, and him reflecting on his father's struggles. And I think you've talked about this a number of times, Jason, like people like Robin Williams, it's, it's feels almost perplexing when they end their own lives. You wonder like, well, why? Why would you end your own life? You, you're famous. People love you. You have so much money. You have it all. And I think that's another reason the show is so important because it, it's almost like the, the anti side to something like that fake famous documentary and looking at all these influencers who are trying to show their, their lives is so perfect, but not acknowledge where their misery is, where their shortcomings are, where their challenges are. And I, I think like, seeing the contrast between that is so important because it's easy to get caught up in the glitz and the glamour. It's easy to think someone like Lady Gaga has the greatest life. She's won an Oscar. She's got all these hit records. Like, you know, she's an attractive woman in great shape. She's white, you know, like on and on. Or you can look at Oprah and think of the great success she's had. But when she talks about her traumas and the things that she's seen, She's not even complaining, you know, neither one of them. And that's one of the things that Stephanie, Lady Gaga, brings up. It's like she's she's like, I forget how she put it, but this is not the point in discussing her trauma is not to get sympathy. It's simply to share it. And again, that's one of the most important elements of the show. They said that sharing our stories helps break the cycle and shows that it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's happened to you. And so if you examine all this, these people are just sharing what's happened. And sometimes there are solutions. Like what I found interesting about the the OCD segment with the Olympian woman, first of all, that segment made me really uncomfortable. I don't know if you felt that way, Jason. Like I was fascinated by watching that and how her obsession like brought up a lot of discomfort for me. And it wasn't about her. It wasn't a judgment of like what she's doing. I'm like, don't want to watch or something. But I, I found myself feeling like interesting emotions around it. 
like seeing somebody have to wash their hands so much for some reason made me feel really uncomfortable. I did find it interesting though that they didn't come back around to her, right? Jason, they didn't like they didn't they just had like her one section in the show, that episode, but they didn't like come back and t- it almost was like she told her story but there wasn't really a resolution. Like here's how I fixed it and I actually found that refreshing. Without watching all the episodes, I don't know if they ever return back to her story, but but I I actually would appreciate it if if they didn't because it's and this is something that comes up in episode two is it's not about fixing all the time. Sometimes it's just about sharing and acknowledging and telling somebody what you're going through, but there's not always going to be some like perfect bow wrapped around your story and a before and after the hero's journey. Sometimes this is just the state of your life. I'm glad that you brought that point up because I think that there's an innate desire for resolution or to or to see ourselves overcome or heal from something. Or in this case of of Ginny this boxer to be like, oh well what happened to her? Did you know how is she handling it? I identify with this big time because I've been reflecting on on the therapy that I've done over the past seven years. And one of the biggest challenges for me in therapy has been overcoming the belief system that I need to be fully healed from my mental illness in order to like be a good partner, be a good boyfriend, be a good business partner, whatever, accomplish the things in the world that I want to accomplish. Right. And and I've realized that I don't think that that's going to happen. I, I don't, I don't believe that mental illness for me, what I struggle with is going to be quote healed. I think I'm learning how to manage it better and different ways to manage it and understand it and massage it. But it's for me, I think it's dangerous to think about the idea of being fully healed before I can have a good life, be a good partner, be a good boyfriend, be a good business person, et cetera. And I realized I was holding on to that idea of I need resolution and to fully heal this before I can like have the life I want. I suppose. And I've realized that I, I'm doing my best every single day to manage it and, and keep showing up for life, even though it's still there. Right. And, and you know, the interesting point about this OCD, I also felt uncomfortable watching because why do I feel uncomfortable as well? It's interesting you bring that up. I think I felt uncomfortable, Whitney, of seeing how much stress and anxiety it was causing her to clean all of the time, you know, and, and, and watching her like you know, rub her hands raw. I, I don't think I, again, had ever seen a person in the process of how they manage their OCD. I'd heard about it, but I'd never witnessed, you know, in this case on camera, a person actually physically dealing with it. And to me, it was interesting that, you know, she chose a profession as a boxer where she's, you know, she's literally getting someone else's sweat on her, someone else's blood on her, uh, someone else's fluids on her body and thought like, man, that, that's interesting that she's able to compartmentalize that when she's in the ring with someone and literally someone's blood and sweat and tears are on her body, that she can somehow compartmentalize that in her professional world. Like that fascinates me. But it shows you, Whitney, I think, how many permutations and versions of mental illness there are and how it can't be a one-size-fits-all approach to deal with this not only on an individual level, but on a systemic societal level right? I think it really comes down to digging into what each person is struggling with and what each person is having difficulty breaking through. And that's why I hesitate to ever do this in a group setting. You know, even with the coaching you and I do, I realize the more I do it, that 
the nuances of each person's situation is so specific. As I'm riffing on this, there, there are things mentally that are kind of themes that are prevalent, but the nuances of each person's experience, I think they've got to be dealt with individually. So for me, I have felt uncomfortable watching this so far. I have felt a kinship relating to people's stories. And I also think like, to go back to Prince Harry for a moment, he said a few things that were really poignant to me. He said, if pain isn't transformed, it's transferred. And that really resonates, right? Because I think if we don't deal with our pain and our trauma, it's very easy to have those emotions color our relationships. Where since we haven't gotten to the root of what we're experiencing, it's very easy to be mean and cruel and, and move that pain into our relationships. So I think that's an important takeaway here too, is instead of masking the pain, you know, he talked a lot about with drugs and alcohol and things like that. As scary as it is to go to therapy, as scary as it is to get to the, the depth of our pain, if we don't, the alternative is we just carry it through our life. And we carry it not only for us, but we carry it into our other relationships too. Yeah, that does seem to be a big theme in the series and an important one too. It also reminds me of that great book, The Body Keeps Score, which I thought about when Stephanie Lady Gaga was was talking about her experiences and how she was having a physical reaction that reminded her of the, the physical trauma that she had, which just for a trigger warning, I won't say, but it was a, a form of trauma and abuse that she went through sexually. And I think she said that she, you know, she kind of numbed herself out and then later on she had to deal with it and how, she would go through things and it was like her body was responding in the same way that it did back then. And that's what's talked about. So one phenomenal book on this subject matter and, and, and PTSD in general, which is also addressed a lot in the second episode is how the body stores these things. And that it's very common for coping for us to not talk about things because we don't want to, we feel like we can't, we don't know how to articulate it, we feel shame, we're embarrassed. That comes up, I believe it's episode two as well, about how a lot of people won't talk about the our experiences because we feel so alone in them. And there's a scene in which Oprah talks about going to a school of girls, I think in Africa, and one of them finds the strength to talk about what happened when she was seven years old. And Oprah says, well, I bet a lot of people in this room can relate. And if you can, would you stand up? And she said out of the 70 or so people there, about 20, some, some 24 or something stood up. And it was a visual representation that a lot of what we go through is is shared by others, meaning that they've had their own experiences that are similar. And it's not until somebody finds the courage to bring it up that others will even feel permission or comfortable sharing it themselves. And I think that's part of the reason that many people suppress their experiences. But sometimes the brain 
as a coping mechanism does that where we're not even conscious of it. We're not aware that we're compartmentalizing it, that we're almost having this temporary amnesia. And I wonder a lot about that. Whenever I hear stories about people uncovering something from their past, I I wonder, like, will I ever experience that? Like, is there something that my brain forgot or numbed out within me that one day is going to come to the surface? And that that scares me sometimes. I've actually met people in person that have shared that one girl actually that I went to church with when I was going regularly in Los Angeles, she talked about, I think it was like when her father was passing away that she uncovered memories of him abusing her and how she didn't even remember it until she was an adult. And that story I was listening to thinking, oh my gosh, like, is that going to happen to me one day? You know, (laughs) like, I mean, it could potentially happen to any of us if we're forgetting something, like something can trigger it and it can come up for us and suddenly we have to face it. And to your point, Jason, another ongoing theme in this series thus far is coping through alcohol, through drugs. I don't know if they'll talk about coping through sex. I mean, we've talked about retail therapy and and there's a number of things that people do to try to numb the pain, avoid the pain, suppress it. And it seems to me that any anything that I come across around trauma is turns out that that's just it's not like it's ever preventing it. It's just simply pushing it down deeper and deeper, hoping that we'll never have to address the pain. And I'm grateful that in episode two, they touch upon grief too, which is an important thing. And one of the big themes of this show is recognizing that it might get uncomfortable to deal with these sides of ourselves and how much we tend to avoid discomfort, whether it's pain, sadness, fear, anger, because they feel so unpleasant and uncomfortable to us. But that's part of the human experience. And what I like about this series, too, is is that it's almost normalizing it. It's like, hey, other people experience these emotions, too, or, or some of these people have been through really traumatic moments in their life, and this is how they're dealing with it. Prince Harry said something in this documentary at the very beginning that I it sounded like he was riffing an anecdotal because I I don't know that we could possibly quantify this for the entire human species. He was just kind of riffing that, you know, he thinks that he said, you know, 99.9% of the human population has been traumatized in some way. Uh, you know, of course, there probably won't be some sort of global study to determine that, but I I think if we get down to the nature of of what traumatizes us on a physical or psychological level that's a it's a pretty interesting thing to put out in the universe right i mean is it possible to have a human experience and not come out of a human lifetime without some form of trauma i don't even know if that's a worthwhile question to ask 
necessarily, or even if it has an answer. But the reason I bring it up is I think if we were to accept that theory that, okay, if you're a human being and you're going to experience some form of trauma, then how do we deal with that trauma in a healthy and balanced and sustainable way? That that's that's where my question goes. And and you brought up the body keeps the score and and talking about Lady Gaga and what she went through. And and I feel one of the biggest turning points for me, Whitney, was starting to do somatic therapy and somatic experiencing where, as an example, I've had different versions of gut issues my entire life. And through working with somatic experiencing, which helps to not only identify where trauma trauma is physically stored in the body and the cell, cellular memory, but helping to release it, I realized that one of the reasons that I believe I've had gut issues my whole life is because as a child, when I would go through traumatic experiences with my father and the physical and emotional violence, I didn't know how the hell to process that as a kid, right? So where did I store it? I stored it in my stomach. And now whenever I, you know, whenever I get scared, whenever I get nervous, whenever I get fearful, my stomach is where I really tap into where that is held in my body, right? So it's it's a question now as an example of this process of how how can I release these emotions quit more quickly rather than store them in my body and on an emotional level go back into the past and release whatever might be still stored there you know and so it's an interesting intersection of that our physical beings aren't these compartmentalized entities that are not affected by our emotions our relationships what we went through as children i think the thing that that i suppose excites me about where medicine is heading is the intersection of our thoughts, our feelings, our trauma, our childhood experiences are completely intermeshed in what is happening to our adult bodies now. It's fascinating to me, right? And so as I continue to do therapy, Whitney, I'm just trying to peel back these layers to think, you know, where are these aha moments of, oh, that's why you have this response now because it's a trauma response to that thing that happened in your childhood that you completely forgot about. And to your point about these, these thoughts, I don't know why, but for some reason in 2021, I have been thinking about situations and circumstances and moments that I have not thought about for decades. Like there's been random bizarre situations, some of them painful, that I was like, oh my God, I haven't thought about that in years. And I wonder, is it coming back up? Because maybe there's more to be excavated there and healed. Maybe there's something unresolved in those situations. So that's been really fascinating to take inventory of. And again, I, I just I, I hope that these conversations give us permission to not necessarily quote find solutions because I think that's a slippery slope, but maybe deal with the pain, the trauma, the things that have affected us in our lives in ways that are holistic and balanced and sustainable. That's where I'm at with the whole thing. I'm just trying to manage it better and become more aware of what needs to be healed, and then do my best to to address it. Yeah. Well, on that note, I was wondering how you felt watching the segment with Chef Rashid. Is that his name? Rashad. Rashad. Because when I saw that, I texted you how there was some parallels. He was on the Food Network like you. You were technically in the cooking channel, but same same overarching company. And he's a chef who had some childhood trauma. And was feeling like 
his depression and, and mental challenges were getting in the way of doing the the work. And I know that you've expressed a lot of that. So I'm curious, did you have any realizations or reflections while watching his segment? I think the parallels were really fascinating in terms of what we experienced with our fathers and his dad going to jail, my dad going to jail, really tough you know, absence of a, of a solid, consistent male figure in our lives. I mean, that's, that's nothing unique. I mean, there's so many young men that are raised without fathers or raised with violent fathers or fathers that are incarcerated. I mean, that, that, that's not an unusual thing, I think, for our society. The, the thing that I came away from Rashad's experience, and this is my interpretation, was when he was talking about how people in public view him. You know, he's this, this gregarious, you know, he talks to people and he's this showman and he's this entertainer and, and inside yet, you know, he, he walks out of the, the spotlight or walks out of interacting with the public and he just feels broken inside. And when he said that, it was like, I completely relate to this. Completely. Where I think for years, you know, people in the public, whether it was YouTube or the cooking channel show or, or whatever speaking appearances, like, oh, Jason, he's such a fun and positive guy. Yay, Jason's here. And it felt like this pressure that was partially of my own creation to show up as that energetic, positive, happy, playful guy that would light up the room. But I go home at night alone and feel like I want to kill myself. So that was really a point that Chef Rashad brought up that I said, dude, I, I, I know what this feels like. And it's almost like a persona that I adopted. I can't speak for him, but for me, it was a persona that I adopted, Whitney, to like get the love, attention, and approval I didn't get from my father. So if I'm the funniest guy in the room, I'm the most entertaining guy on stage, I make you laugh. I've talked about this in the past, right? Then that's a way for me to get that attention, approval, and love that my father never gave me. But it's it's an empty pit because like even even yesterday, this is the, you know, for what it's worth, I I went to a restaurant with our mutual friend Ross Whitney and I had dinner with him. And I'm wearing a mask and I have my hat on whatever and and one of the people at the restaurant was like like gave me this, like, are you Jason Robel? And I was like, yeah, you know, and it's like, it was this sweet moment of like recognition, but I can take that stuff in now and realize that I don't, I, I don't need to um, chase it or try and get it from people to make myself feel worthy of life. And for decades, I was doing that. I need your attention. I need your recognition. I need the fame. I need the money so that I can fill this hole, this festering, painful, hole in my heart that's there from the relationship with my father, right? And so I think I'm starting to finally acknowledge that, well, what, what do I actually want to do in my life where I'm not chasing those things? And so the point of relation with him, Whitney, was this idea of playing this role in public, but then behind closed doors, you're just this broken human being who's in so much pain. And so I just, you know, I want to show up as I am now. Like, it, it, you know, be like, here I am. If I'm not having a great day or I feel sad or I feel depressed, like you're going to get that version of me. And if you can't handle it, it's not my business, you know, but I don't want to be in that role that I saw Rashad playing, which, which is like being one way in public and then feeling completely broken, but you know, when you're in your private life, 
Like I, for me, I think part of my healing process wit is like come as you are and just show up as I am and not try and play a role or try and like get something from people. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. And that leads me back to the documentary Fake Famous, where it just seems like so many people are chasing that. And uh, actually, another documentary I watched, I want to make sure I got the name right. I think it's called Kid 90. It's about Soleil Moon Fry from Punky Brewster. Have you heard of this documentary, Jason? Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but some of the reviews and articles were absolutely fascinating of talking about that whole scene in the early 90s and the people she was hanging out with and what they were doing. Like, I, I want to watch it because it sounds interesting as hell. This documentary is on Hulu and it came out just a few months ago. I think it was in February 2021. And... It was one of those things I was scrolling through Hulu and it popped up and thought, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> you know, because I remember watching a lot of those actors and I actually just checked out the the rebooted version of Punky Brewster, which in my opinion is not good. But I I might give it another try. I wasn't into it. Uh, I did really like that show when I was little. And uh yeah, Soleil grew up with some really big names from back in the 90s. I was actually expecting our friend Ellie Keats to be in that, but she wasn't uh, because Ellie was also in uh, that crowd. And I would hear stories about Ellie being a young actress in Hollywood and going to the clubs and all these things. So I I actually enjoyed watching it. And it reminded me a lot of myself too. I, I have been going through some old videos of myself recently and Similar to Soleil, I used to carry around a video camera, which was not super common, but before cell phones, at least, you know, and back in the day, like people barely even took photos. Like, you know, <laughs> it's fascinating how much it's shifted because we would take photos, you know, we had disposable cameras and, you know, some people, you know, most kids would, wouldn't really have a camera. Like, I felt like that was something your parents had, a video camera or a film camera felt like adult things. And maybe you could borrow it if you knew how to use them. But they were expensive and not very common. And so I saved up a ton of money to get a video camera. And it was my pride and joy because I I really like documenting things. But people thought I was strange for doing that. So watching Kid 90 was interesting for that reason alone. Like, I could really relate to Soleil wanting to document her life. Can we just, can we geek out for two seconds on some old school tech, Whitney? The first camera you bought, because, uh, so first of all, for the listener or the watcher on YouTube, Whitney and I have interesting parallels for our careers because we both went to film school, different film schools. Uh, but back in the day in the 90s, Wit, I remember when I first got my hands on an eight millimeter camera. Like it wasn't a VHS, right? It wasn't, you know, you see images from the eighties of these giant VHS camcorders. And then finally eight millimeter was like a third of the size, these tiny cassettes. And it was actually like a handheld, like a literal handheld. So when you, when you got your first camera, Whitney, I'm curious about two things. What was the format? Was it an eight millimeter or was it a high eight, which came out right after eight millimeter? And B, being one of the only people being way ahead of the curve, I mean, years before YouTube, 
were people annoyed by you like bringing a camera into a meal, a family gathering, making the videos you did? Because when you did it, it was highly unusual. Now everyone's got a freaking camera and a video recorder 4K on their phone. So for you back then, you know, this is a bit of a tangent, but how did people regard you like carrying a camera everywhere? Were they like, oh, that's just Whitney? Or were they were they annoyed? Were they supportive? Like, what was your the response to that of you being so early in that curve? I think people similar again, if you watch Kid 90, it was pretty much what I experienced, which you'll see celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio and Brian Austin Green, who, you know, it's just so fascinating to see them all. Stephen Dorf and David Arquette, like a lot of these bigger names from back then on camera telling, you know, acting kind of awkward, even though they're actors they felt awkward seeing the camera around them. And even like the difference between how Soleil talks now as an adult versus as a teenager. Like I was actually, when I was watching old footage of myself, Jason, I would like put on these weird voices and do these, have these weird mannerisms. And I thought I was embarrassed, but like as an adult watching myself as a teenager, which I'm sure many people feel, but like, recently when I was looking at this old footage thinking like, ugh, like why did I do those things? But then just seeing like celebrities do those things, even though they were, you know, professionals on camera, that was like a normal reaction. So I got those type of reactions from myself, from others. And I remember in high school, it was really strange for me to have my video camera in high school. And I recorded a lot. And, and nobody was telling me I couldn't, like, I don't remember my teacher's caring that much. I I went to a liberal school. So I think they knew that it was part of my passion for making movies. And I would, if it was inappropriate, they would tell me to turn it off. But I have footage of like the last, my, I think, guess I was, I think I was in ninth grade and up. So I recorded probably the last three or four years of, of high school, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th. Yeah. Four, four years, I guess. And I'm really grateful. I remember back then, Jason, saying to people, you'll thank me later for doing this. Like I had that inkling, not the same as I do now. Like I guarantee if I posted that footage, like my high school class would be thrilled. And I I went to a small school. So there was like 80 of us. And like, it's amazing because there are people that have passed away that I have footage of them and their family members would be, I've actually been wanting to like gather all the footage together to send to some of them. And then, you know, all the things that you can remember and, and observe about yourself through having that footage is really remarkable. I think the reason I brought this up, Jason, is that, gosh, I'm trying, I'm trying to think there was another point and bringing up Kid 90 that I've I've kind of come away from. It was some segue from the fake famous. I think it's just like how things have shifted, you know, again, with technology. We operate differently now. Like part of, part of your point of trying to seek this validation from people knowing you, you know, and that's become so commonplace as the fake famous documentary outlines. And we've talked about the Kardashians in recent episodes and the impact that they've had. And we've talked about social dilemma and childhood 2.0 at the impact that social media has had on our mental health. And it's a very relatable experience 
to want to be known for something. And I guess that's what's fascinating with you too, Jason. Like you had a traditional TV show, which not everybody experiences, but almost anybody these days can grow an online community, an audience and be held up on some sort of pedestal. Although what I find is interesting is we're getting to a point with social media where like anybody can have an audience. So like it's kind of becoming less and less like of a big deal. It feels so accessible, you know, anybody can be a, a musician and have their music streaming on Spotify and make money from it. Like, and I use anybody loosely because I'm not saying it's easy, but it's much easier than it used to be. And that makes me wonder, well, what's going to happen next? Because it seems like human beings have a core desire to stand out and be special and fame is so attractive. But if everybody's famous, then what happens? And I don't know if we've really experienced that as humans, yet, right? Like maybe we have, I, I, that's something I would like to go and look at historically but what are we going to create next in order to feel special and differentiate ourselves? Will we get to the point where we don't really need it as much or will we always want that as, as human society? And to your point, Jason, it's like, is that just a, like an old wound? Does everybody experience that? Do the majority, do just some people want that? You know, and it, it plays out in all different ways. Like some people I think are very drawn to fame and they, they, I think this is the reason I brought up Kid 90 is how you can have all this fame and still be really depressed. Like, I mean, suicide is a huge element of Kid 90. So trigger warning for that too. I think Soleil in the documentary talks about six different people that she knew closely and had in her home videos that committed suicide. And I was watching it like, oh my gosh, like the trauma she must have experienced from knowing all these people intimately. And then they chose to end their own lives. Like it's hard enough for us on the outside. Again, this comes up too in the me you don't see when, when they're talking with Zach, Robin Williams' son. And I'm saying they're thinking, wow, like I remember how sad I felt hearing that Robin died but imagine being his son, imagine being his friend and the shock and the, and Prince Harry talks about this too with his mom, just like the deep shock that he was in and having to share that grief with the rest of the world. It's really intense. Robin Williams was one of the reasons that I finally decided to get help and when he took his own life, you know, it was around the same time he had a he had a TV series that with Sarah Michelle Geller that got canceled after one season. And around the time that Robin Williams took his life was the same time that my series got canceled as well. And when Robin Williams took his life, it was part of a big wake up call for me because to that point, I was like, I can handle this depression on my own. I'm feeling suicidal. I can handle that on my own. I wasn't asking for help. I wasn't going to therapy. I didn't go to the doctor and get my panels tested or my neurotransmitters looked at. So in many ways, when when Robin passed, it was like, 
I never knew him, never met him personally, although he was one of my heroes as an entertainer, an actor, and a comedian. It, it kind of shook me in a way, Whitney was like, I need to go get help. And so his his passing, in a way, this is a very it's a very strange thing you bring up, right? Because you have the family and the friends and the people who personally know celebrities who, t- who take their own lives or who pass in accidents. But then the ripple effect on a, a adoring public that perhaps loves and appreciates these people. So in, in a bizarre way, you know, that that was the moment that needed to shake me out of my stupor to finally go get a therapist and get my panels looked at and finally get professional help. Because I was in a very, very, very dark place when when I heard that news about Robin Williams. So you bringing that up is bringing back a lot of memories for me of of that time in 2014, Whitney, you know? And I think, you know, asking for help, I think there are different communities. I, I think it's stigmatized in general, right? This whole conversation of mental health and suicidal ideation and I think it's stigmatized in more communities and more segments than others. You know, Rashad in this documentary talked about how the black community, generally speaking, it's something you you still don't talk about. And that for men, you know, the suicide rates in 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 men, at least last time I checked, being higher than women, you know, as men, it's still this thing of like, you know, just suck it up and, you know, deal with it and don't talk about it. I mean, it's a very old school approach to pain and suffering and trauma for men. And I think so discussing this and having so many different people from so many different backgrounds talking about this, I hope can destigmatize this for people of color, destigmatize this for men, destigmatize this for celebrities and being like, we're all traumatized to one degree or another. And, and I also wonder too, Whitney, I really wonder this, without specific kinds of trauma in our lives, Right. If, if, if people weren't traumatized in certain ways, would they even want to seek fame? Would they even want to seek notoriety, influence, social media fame, the things we're talking? It's almost like I, I would love to see a, a, some sort of study of people that seek fame, power, money, influence, and the level and type of trauma they've experienced in their life. What I'm saying is I wonder if celebrity and fame and all this shit would even exist if people weren't traumatized or is part of that impetus to get the attention, approval, fame, and money, some sort of reaction to make oneself feel safe and adored and loved because they didn't feel safe and adored and loved as children. I'm not saying it's a rule, but I really do wonder, would people even give a shit about the pursuit of fame and celebrity? Because it, it, it brings us to the point of why do people even pursue it in the first place? I'm not saying trauma is the sole reason, but I'm very curious with this question of how much does trauma play a role in it? Because if people were mentally, I don't want to use the word well-adjusted, but perhaps dealt with their trauma in a way where sex, drugs, rock and roll, money, fame, social media standing were not able to, um, were not accessible, right? Those distractions, were because in, in some ways they feel like distractions, don't they? You know, is fame is an addiction or the pursuit of fame can be an addiction. The pursuit of money can be an addiction. But the question is, what is underneath it for people? And for me, I think it was safety. You know, is that if I get the attention, approval, money, fame, significance, I'll feel safe because I didn't feel safe as a kid. So to me, the big thing that I'm working on in all of this is feeling safe and not necessarily relying on these external things to make me feel safe. 
So I think part of the process is identifying like the why, why, why are we pursuing these things? And maybe that if we start to really engage the healing process, this is just my experience talking, that as we heal and we deal with the trauma, we don't actually want those things anymore. Like on many levels, Whitney, I don't, I don't like, for me, I realized that my motivation in pursuing those things was again, to feel safe and feel loved. But if I give myself the feeling of safety and love, then I don't feel like I need to pursue those things externally anymore. That's just my, that, that's been my process. Is it time for products? I think so. And, you know, to wrap up this episode before we, we get to our wellness product recommendations for this episode, I encourage the listener to watch the me you can't see if you are able to watch it without feeling triggered and reflect on how this plays out in your own life, but also for others. In episode two, I I was reflecting a lot on what it's like to feel helpless when other people in your life are going through mental health issues. And so even when we don't feel like those impact us directly, they can certainly they're almost guaranteed to impact us indirectly because mental health is a huge challenge in all of these different forms from anxiety and depression and OCD and PTSD and developmental trauma and addiction and a substance use disorder, which um, is an alternative to su- substance abuse, but use instead of abuse, which I thought was an important distinction. And how important it is to know that there are people in your life who believe in you, that see you, that understand you, that value you, encourage you, and that you belong and you're connected. Those those are such important things. So we encourage you, the listener, to connect with us and know that we value you deeply. And there are other people too. We we have communities for this reason. We have a Facebook group. I have my group Beyond Measure, which is you're welcome to join. We do our trainings, Wellness Warrior Training and the Consistency Code and are consciously working on developing systems to support you through your journey so that you get that support and encouragement and connection that each of us needs. And I hope that this series encourages you to reach out to others and speak your truth and to check in on them too. And I'm going to continue watching this series. If there's more to say, it might be sprinkled in in future episodes. We may do another episode about this. And uh, we will link to this show, the series. We'll link to Kid90. The book that we mentioned, all of that is linked in our show notes at wellevator.com. And hopefully you find those helpful resources. And we'd love to hear from you if you end up watching that documentary. Also in our show notes is a link to the products that we're about to mention. And Jason, similar to the last solo episode, which which I believe would have been last Wednesday, I'm starting to do products in um, like categories or groups. So I have another one of those today because I received... The Natural Products Expo virtual sampling box, which I guess, I guess a virtual sampling box. Yeah, they call it the contactless sampling program, which I thought was really smart. And for those of you who are not familiar 
with the Natural Products Expo. It is our favorite trade show. It did not happen at all in 2020. They did start a virtual version and they're continuing that in 2021 and hopefully going to have it back in person in September 2021, which I plan to attend. In the meantime, they have been sending out products so that you can experience some of the new things that are coming out. And I'm excited to share that. Going through them one by one so that I can properly recommend them. Um, I wanted to mention a few things. They they did something really cool, Jason. And I assume you didn't get this because you probably would have told me. Is that right? Okay, he's shaking his head. They sent out boxes. Let me find the right. Oh, here it is. They sent out two different types of boxes. One was product samples. And then the other was like this. How did they put it? They called it Natural Products Expo at home so that you could feel what it was like to be there, kind of. And it's also called an Experience Anaheim box. So Natural Products Expo West is typically held in Anaheim in March of each year. So they sent the coolest box of things, Jason, which was really impressive. First, for branding, they sent this towel and everything had a a reason, like a symbolism behind it. So this is a cooling towel that you can use for workouts. I do yoga most days, so that's pretty neat. And it's because at the Natural Products Expo, they hold group yoga classes every morning. They sent out, I'm trying to find the right um, section of each of these to talk about. Oh, yes, this one is really neat. It's a silicone cup from a company called Silly Pint. Look how pretty this is. If you're listening to the audio, I encourage you to go to YouTube so you can see this. And this Silly Pint represents the concerts and parties that they typically have. So this is amazing. I've actually had one of these for a while and it's one of my favorite cups. So when I saw this, I was really excited. There's just something very satisfying about drinking out of it. It's a great size. This is 16 ounces. You could put whatever beverage in here. And, you know, obviously you can't break it easily. Probably the product that excited me the most was this one. This is called a rocket book. And I've seen these and I've always thought they were so cool. I have not used it yet, but it's a reusable notepad. And it's very high tech, so it fits in for me. And you can actually write handwritten notes on it and then you scan it and somehow that uploads to the cloud. I don't know how they do it, but this is because at the Natural Products Expo, they have like a speakers and things like that. So you can go and learn and take notes and you might want to take notes throughout a trade show. So this is pretty cool. On the same line, they also sent some blue blocker glasses, which I now have three pairs of. Um, this, uh, this looks like just a generic brand. Jason and I are fans of two brands. One is called OcuShield and the other is called Swanwick. Great blue blocker glasses. And they also sent a few other knickknacks, including the official Natural Products Expo pin, which I guess is going to become a collectible thing. Now, that was the first box. The second box, Jason, they sent a variety of products to sample. 
I've slowly been making my way through them. So I will mention them now. These are food products. One is probably going to surprise you, Jason. And you're probably going to be a little upset that I ate this because typically this is something I would give to you. And that's Hippie Snacks New Almond Crisps. I was curious about these. I've seen these on the shelves, but I've never bought them because I'm typically sensitive to almonds. But for some reason, I ate these and I had no reaction to them. Now, I don't have an almond allergy, but typically I have a reaction to almonds whenever I eat them. I don't know how, but it didn't affect me. So that was really exciting because these were absolutely delicious. This cheesy chive flavor, fantastic. So if you don't have a nut allergy or sensitivity, check these out. Hippie Snacks also makes really good cauliflower crisps. They are um, gluten-free too, which is neat. This brand I thought was pretty good. I don't know if I would buy it again, but uh, this is like a little bean and nut snack mix and it was creole flavored and it has fava beans pecans chickpeas red bell pepper peanuts and pepitas and i'm assuming this is called sahal snacks is how you pronounce it properly and they're made in seattle washington and lastly i didn't think that these were that exciting but satisfying if you like potato chips uglies kettle potato chips are pretty neat because they are on a mission to reduce food waste. And on the back, it says 30% of food produced worldwide is wasted. 26% of U.S. produce gets discarded for cosmetic reasons. Thus, this is called uglies because they're not pretty to look at. That doesn't mean they don't taste good. And sadly, 20% of children worldwide under the age of five are undernourished. So they're on a mission for that, which I thought was really great. They were really good. I mean, I wouldn't buy them just for the flavor. I didn't, I mean, it's kind of hard to say. I'm sure everybody can relate to this, but like, I wasn't like, wow, these are the best potato chips I've ever had, but I really appreciated them and I thought they were very high quality and they have great packaging. So shout out to them. Those are the products I tried thus far. There's a bunch of others that I'm experimenting with and I will get back to you, I'm sure in a future video once I've formed a full opinion on them. What do you have today, Jason? I have something that has been part of my um, physical therapy regimen. So uh, I've been doing physical therapy for just a little over five months now for my shoulder. And at the physical therapy studio, the cool thing, one of the many cool things is they have a lot of tech devices there. They have ultrasound. They have anti-inflammatory acoustasonic devices. Like I get hooked up with a lot of really cool tech there. And one of the cool aspects of going to physical therapy at this office, shout out to Natural Sports Therapy in Costa Mesa, Dr. G, is he has a lot of different brands of massage guns there. So I was able to sample a variety of different percussive massage guns and figure out which one was the best for my particular situation. So the interesting thing is I tried massage guns that were upwards of like $900 there, Whitney, like they had like the Theragun Pro and some other models. But I actually chose one that's on the lower price spectrum because I found that it provided nine tenths of the experience that I could get with the $900, the super expensive ones. 
and give me what I needed for my my therapy. So I actually recently invested in this, a Theragun Mini. It's a miniature version of the Theragun Pro. It doesn't have as many speeds. It's only got three speeds. I say only because even the highest setting is legit on this Theragun Mini. So it's really, really quiet. And I like the fact that it's ergonomically designed to the point where I can actually like I can actually reach around and use it on my shoulder, right? So I can actually do it on my injury and I'm actually, you know, I don't have to wait for my girlfriend, Laura, or anybody else to do it. Like I can actually accomplish it on my own. So I wanted to show it really quickly, but I got a really great deal of all things on QVC. So if anyone's a, a, a price shopper out there, I found a really, really great deal on QVC. I don't know if the deal is still going or not, but you get multiple attachments and it's cordless. So I've been using this for like a month and I've only charged it once. So whatever their battery technology is, shout out to Theragun for not only making a great percussive massage gun, but y'all's charging technology on point. I have only charged it once and been using it for a month. So I wanted to demo it real quick for everyone. Uh, If you're not watching on YouTube, jump over to our YouTube version because you'll get to see this in action. This is what it looks like, right? Super portable, easy to hold in your hand. And uh, it's got three speeds. So I find that for most things, Whitney, the middle speed is my favorite. So it's pretty quiet. Then you go to the middle speed. And then all you got to do is just like, I literally will just put my arm around my shoulder. And then after a PT session, I'll do this for about 10, 15 minutes. And I've been doing it on my thighs. I've been doing it on my butt. I've been doing it. uh, And you get that cool vibrating voice thing. So anyway, Theragun Mini, I think it's worth every penny. And again, you get 90% of the function, I find, as you do with the Pro, which is, you know, eight times more expensive. So thank you to Theragun. And a little bit of background too, Whitney, since we're talking about interesting relations and how we relate to people's stories. The founder of Theragun, I didn't know this until I bought it. uh, His name is Dr. Jason Worsland. He created the first Theragun after he got in a motorcycle accident. So this was actually designed for recovery from a motorcycle accident for the inventor of it, which I thought was a very cool backstory. So shout out to Dr. Jason, shout out to Theragun, and thanks for assisting me as I'm getting to the finish line of my uh, physical therapy regimen. With that, dear listener, dear watcher, dear supporter... We want you to go to our website. It's wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can access the show notes, the transcript, all the product recommendations, all the books and documentaries we mentioned on today's episode. And if you want to shoot us an email directly to share your personal story or your perspective, if you end up do watching the documentary, you can shoot us a direct email. It's hello at wellevator.com. That goes directly to Whitney and myself. Or you can shoot us a DM on Instagram, on Twitter, our Facebook group, wherever you want to find us. We are easily reachable and we always love hearing from your perspective and your life stories and what you're going through and what you're experiencing. Uh, we have new episodes every Monday, every Wednesday, every Friday with our guests. And thanks for getting uncomfortable with us. Um, A lot of these subject matters, when we talk about mental health and suicidal ideation and trauma, they're not easy to talk about, Uh, but that is the very reason we started this podcast, was to have difficult, uncomfortable, challenging conversations that hopefully will lead to not only our individual healing, but the healing of the collective. So thanks for being uncomfortable. Thanks for listening. Thank you for supporting, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Take care.
for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.